Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Ruth Kudsey. Ruth is an entrepreneur and educator. She runs a training business and a coaching business. Her passion is supporting people to feel better and achieve their goals using coaching techniques and positive psychology. She is a double best-selling author, trainer, teacher, podcaster and speaker. Welcome to the podcast, Ruth. Thank you so much for having me. You're, no, you're very welcome. And that lovely little short and sweet intro, which really doesn't, I don't think, touch on your years and decades of experience in this field. <laughs> I'm going to tease all those qualifications and other businesses okay. out of you. <laughs> and I've also got a copy of your book, How to Feel Better, here, which is, did that only come out this year? Yeah, it came out May the 25th, so about just over three months now, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get on to that, but I'm fascinated to hear what you think around this topic of resilience. I mean, I think it's such an interesting topic because it's something, so, you know, I train people to become coaches. I do lots of stuff in the positive psychology field, and I have been studying in that field for nearly 30 years, and it's a word that is so emotive. And I think that it, when I'm training coaches, we're always like, what does the word mean to the person in front of them rather than what does the word mean in terms of dictionary definition? And for me personally, like I used to think being resilient meant that you just kept going. And I worked myself really close to burnout. I was a deputy head teacher. I was about a really early 30s of a massive school in North London. And I thought I was uber resilient because I didn't have any time off, because I was always on, I was always answering things. I'd always put my hand up. I'd be working really long hours. And I thought that was resilience. So I thought it was like that, that hardiness, that keeping going. And that was, you know, this thing, this badge, this this way that we were successful. And that really was what I thought resilience was pretty much until I was about 32 years old. <laughs> I'm trying to think if my moment of burnout, I think I was slightly older, so you got the lesson <laughs> before me. <laughs> of um, Yes, I, I have a similar experience when I was a lawyer, and I'm sure I looked very resilient as I was rocking up to work, you know, the day after bereavements and and all sorts of things so it felt like yes that isn't your definition now so what that happened? is not my definition now no. <laughs> what happened to change that I've got a feeling it's not great or not yeah, not an well, easy lesson it, it's it you know I, I was lucky because I had somebody who worked with me really closely a guy called Matt who noticed my behaviors and what had happened is the school had gone into special measures. So, you know, anything, if you know anything about schools, it's the work you do not want to send your children to or work in a school in special measures. It's like the worst category. And I remember like the day that we found out being upset and then the next day being upset. And then like the 
third day, like something happened and I was like crying and upset. And Matt just took me into his office and he's like, you need to sort yourself out. You're not like, you think you're really resilient, but you're not. And I was like, and he's, and he said to me like, what did you have? Tell me what you've had for dinner this week. And I'm like, McDonald's. And what do you have for lunch? What, what else have you eaten? I'm like, like maybe a Greg's like, this is like, before that, I'd always be like, I always look after myself, but I had a long commute and I was getting into literally eating McDonald's on the train for my tea because I obviously didn't have enough time to stop in McDonald's and eat my meal. I had to eat it on the train. And what had happened is I basically wore myself down to pretty much burnout. But I, he saved me. Like he said to me, okay, what do you, you know, what can you do? And really it was about starting to do less and starting to have boundaries and starting to actually go shopping for proper food um, and coming into work a little bit later, leaving a bit earlier. It was all those things that we hear, but also it was very much about listening to myself because, you know, things, so I I don't get migraines. I get something called auroras. I don't know if you know about aurora. So you can get an aurora, which is basically your vision goes a bit blurry. You feel a bit lightheaded. And there's a percentage of people, I think it's about 10% of us who get that. And it's usually a pre-migraine thing, but we only get that. Now I was getting this. So usually I get this, you know, once every couple of months, I was having this a couple of times a week. And I was like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's because of this, it's because of that, not going to my doctor who would have said, well, I think it's stress. So my body kept saying to me, you need to stop. But I was just ignoring it. I was thinking, I'm young, I'm invincible. This is what you do. So if it wasn't for Matt, I would have 100% burnt out. Like he was really the person that made me go, like, actually, I can't do this. This isn't sustainable. I'm feeling really close to the edge of my capacity. And I think that made me think about what I talk about now is emotional resilience, which is actually being able to recognize when you need to stop and be able to recognize when your body is giving you a little sign. So maybe not roars all the time or, um, oh gosh, the other thing that I used to have is I used to get, um, I haven't had it actually for a long time, really, really like red, dry skin, especially by my head, my, um, my hairline really attractive so like kind of red flaky dry skin by my hairline as well all of those things like you don't look good and you don't look good because your body is crying out so now I'm all about what does my body what is my body telling me what do I feel what do I need rather than how can I keep going no matter what so it's like that shift into long-term resilience and understanding that sometimes we need to pause and we need to stop rather than thinking that resilience is just keeping going no matter what because nobody however however superhuman people think they are nobody can keep going forever can they no no I don't believe they can I I think I mean like one of the things I could give you a list of those signals that my body was trying to give me but one thing that really struck when I was talking about burnout with a previous guest um Zay McCormick was that he said like up until that moment for him 
you know, similar to what you've just described in terms of going in on those days and just not being able to cope with it was he said, if you ask me at any point up to that point, up to that time, are you okay? He'd have gone, yeah, I'm fine. And it just seems I would have done the same. And it feels like you would have done that as well. Like, (laughs) yeah. And I also think that when you're in a highly stressful environment, which I was in, you're around, like, your, you know, your nervous system responds to other people's nervous systems, right? So you're around other people that are really highly stressed. And so it just becomes normal. So it's normalized to answer your, I mean, the, your Blackberry. It's normalized to answer your Blackberry at midnight. It's normalized to not look after yourself. It's normalized to drink too much alcohol. It's normalized... All of these things are completely, so you don't really have a frame of reference. And often when you're there as well, it's not like you're socializing with your friends or seeing your family or doing any of those things that you do if you were actually being resilient because you're in such a focus. And I mean, I think it's normally about work. You're in such a focus about work. And there's people that you're spending the most time with. They're probably in a very similar position to Mm. you, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And so now what would a a resilient person look like to you? So for me, a resilient person is somebody who is able to hear the signs from their nervous system and respond to them and has got, and I really don't like this word, but I can't ever think of a better one, but has got boundaries in place that protect them first. You know, all this stuff that we see on Instagram, like put your own life jacket on first and all. And I used to be like sneering at that kind of stuff. (laughs) But like, it's true, isn't it? Mm. A resilient person meets their needs first. And that means that they can meet other people's needs. That means that they can show up and they're not afraid to say no. And I think that many people who have suffered, you know, in that old style of resilience have this real, this real thing that if they say no, they'll be letting people down or they'll be found out that they're not as good at their job as they think they are. So they've got this kind of people pleasing patterns. So I think a resilient person is somebody who really is able to prioritize themselves. That emotional resilience that you're talking about, those hearing the signs and the and saying no, I feel as if I can do that because I reached that extreme point where I was burnt out and suffered health problems. But I'd quite like to know how I could have found that and seen those signs without going to such lengths. Is that something that you you facilitate yeah. for people? Because <laughs> surely yeah, I, we made I the think... mistakes. We don't have to, not everybody has to do that, surely. Yeah, not everyone <laughs> has to go to the edge. I think that it's it's a lot about awareness. So, you know, what, the problem is that when we're in a heightened state, when we're in our nervous systems in a heightened state, we do things like we go to yoga, don't we? But we go to yoga and we're doing the savasana at the end. I remember getting so cross, like, you know, and, and the yoga teacher always says, like, you know, stay for longer if you can. I'm not <laughs> staying for longer. Um, you know, but it's actually starting to catch yourself in those moments and thinking about how are you creating space in your day? 
Now, I'm not like space to check in with yourself. So that could be journaling. It could be meditation. It could be sitting with a drink. It could be, you know, I'm going to use the, the really fancy term forest bathing, which basically means like walking mindfully in nature. It's something that is conscious and intentional where you're able to check in with yourself. And the key thing is that it's something that you are in, you know, that you are engaging with rather than you're doing it for the point. Because I know that I was, you know, when I was doing all of that, I was going to obviously Bikram yoga classes because, you know, I didn't just want to do, I didn't want to do that relaxing yoga. I want to do yoga that made me really fit. And, um, and but really stressed your body, it. which just yeah, exactly. like, just, of course, yeah. like at the time I was running a hundred mile ultra marathons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, that's so normal, but actually it's going, what do I need to nurture my body and how can I listen to my body? And a lot of that is about taking a step back. I think that we are so into the go, 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 go. And it re- we really need to just take a step back. And it's the hardest thing to do when you're in the go, but it is going to have the biggest difference. So five minutes, 10 minutes a day, that's it, where you just have time to check in with your thoughts, your emotions. And by the way, if you're not feeling an emotion, that is a sign. So if you're just like, yeah, I'm okay. It's like, hmm okay, we're meant to feel the range. Uh, We're not meant to suddenly go from happy to anger in 10 seconds, which you might be noticing, but we're meant to be able to feel the range. So getting frustrated if we miss our train is normal. Seeing it as like the worst thing in the world isn't. So it's starting to recognize like, you know, and maybe asking yourself, is this reaction If I told my mom or my best friend or my partner that I'd reacted in this way, what would their face be doing? And I love doing that as a sense check because sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, you can imagine saying to somebody, I had this awful experience, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be looking at you like, yeah, that's a bit extreme to react like that. And I love doing that. Like I can see my friend's face really vividly and her looking at me like, what are you what are you actually talking about so that's that's quite a a good reflective exercise that I like to do when I'm thinking about how I would recount something that's happened yeah that's really useful I was just thinking remembering a um a memory of me being in that state telling somebody about the worst day ever and then she was like is that it <laughs> like, yeah okay. yeah it's when people say and what else yeah <laughs> That, that was it <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes yeah, it's a different perspective yeah yeah and then one of the things that interests me about resilience is that I can have those days that feel like the worst catastrophe ever has happened and then I know on another day I would brush that off and just be able to cope with it and it's been that up and down um mm-hmm. for me that's made it it seems to fluctuate what I <laughs> my resilience this seems like something you you come across I'm thinking in your book when you look very holistically at sleep, for example, or you've just mentioned about what you're eating. Do you feel like all these things help us to foster some sort of resilience or at least have an effect on what our capacity is? 
Yeah, I think they definitely have an effect on what our capacity is. I think our hormones do as well, um, as women especially. But I think, yeah, if we are able to do all of those things, like I always say, like we're like plants, so we need nourishing. So we need to have like good soil. So the soil needs to have nutrients in it. I'm saying this, I just ate my daughter's magnum because she didn't like it, but you know. Uh, <laughs> Which is a shame. It's fine. We're not um, looking for perfection, are we? Exactly. We're not looking for perfection. Um, so, yeah, you need to have like nutrient rich soil that's going to nourish you. So, you need to have those nutrients. You need to have water. You need to have sunlight. You need to have like rest and sleep. I know plants don't usually sleep, but you know, you need to have all of those things and those ingredients to give you that baseline. Because we know, and we probably all recognize that when we don't get enough sleep, that we, you know, our emotional reserves are lower. And when our emotional reserves are lower, we get into that more like reacting than responding. So it's a lot there about emotional regulation. And of course, you know, it, it's like the foundation. So I always think like, let's let's look at a foundational level. What can we do? And let's also be kind to ourselves. Because if we're like, I don't know, like, actually I've I've slipped back in I've you know I've eaten McDonald's or I've done whatever and or I've worked really late in the office if we then start to make ourselves feel bad about it then we start perpetuating that pattern even more so it's definitely about being that that level of forgiveness with ourselves um and also that feeling that tomorrow is another day and you know so when you do have a bad day it can be a bad day not a bad week or a bad month. And that compassionate voice and compassionate approach to ourselves, I'm just interested if that's always been in what you've been studying and practicing, because as I say, it's like nearly 30 years since you started studying psychology. Or I'm wondering if this is something that seems to come up more just because I'm looking at it and reading more, or whether this is a new approach. I think it's a newer approach. So, you know, psychology traditionally, so when I was studying it in the 90s, it was very much around what's wrong with people. Now, of course, there are things like I did health psychology and sports psychology, um, which weren't necessarily what was wrong with people. But there was a big focus on that. I think since the, ironically, since the 90s, but of course, it hadn't got to universities by then, because there seems to be a lag between what people are researching and what, anyway, um, uh, Martin Seligman started looking at okay well, what's what actually makes people thrive what makes people happy what makes people increase their well-being and did all of has done all of his research of authentic happiness and the University of Pennsylvania I think or it could be Penn State it, they started to look at different things and that's when they looked at things like um you know I love what I love about psychology is you always learn it and you're like well that makes sense you know holding on to resentment isn't good for you and then you think about you know the people that you know in your life that hold on to resentment, and you're like, well, that's obvious. <laughs> but yeah, then, then they do studies and they prove it. And you think, oh, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of the positive psychology and a lot of the the work has been done in the kind of in the last 20-ish years, really thinking about how can people be happier? Um, and how can people live more fulfilled lives? Because before that, yeah, we used to measure a company, and, and we still do, so a, a country's success by how much money they make. 
Um, and that's really that's interesting in itself because about I think it was a maybe about 15 years ago they did an experiment in America and they looked at happiness related to money and they found that once you get got to a ceiling it didn't increase um it was Daniel Goldman I think but they've done replicated that experiment recently and they found that when you got more money your happiness did increase oh no it does increase like oh well that's quite interesting (laughs) (laughs) but you know now we're looking at other things. And I think people are starting to recognize that as humans, we're not machines. And for some reason, we we seem to have gone through you know, the Industrial Revolution, the 60s, and then kind of from the 80s onwards, it was like human capital was treated like this resource. And we were working more hours and we had all of these different pressures. And I think now people are starting to go, that yeah, we might have been more productive, but maybe that's been a detriment to other things. Mm. And I guess we've also had the explosion of our phones and technology and and maybe we've become exhausted in other ways in terms of being that switched on the whole time. That can't be good for our nervous system. No. Well, you know that neuroscientists work with Apple and Facebook and LinkedIn and all of these places. Because the way that our, you know, a a big, big way that our behavior is driven, it's driven by the anticipation of pleasure or pain, reward or threat. So when we go on to these platforms, you know, if we get likes, they, you know, then our, our brain is building a new neural pathway. Like when I go onto Instagram, I get likes and then we keep going on. And there's a great book called Dopamine Nation that says um, by an American lady called Annie, I can't remember her surname. And she's kind of like, well, actually, we've all become addicted to dopamine. And what's happened is that the more dopamine that we get, we get out of equilibrium. So then we need more and then we need more. So it's really interesting because actually, you know, it's like it's playing with our natural dopamine receptors. And that isn't necessarily a good thing. No, I mean, you. I felt like in your book, the How to Feel Better book, it you gave us a bit of a a nudge to to make it work in our favour in terms of getting into positive habits and mm, behaviours and yeah. using the dopamine. But then, it, as I was reading that, I did think we're kind of up against it, aren't we? With our phones just w- trying to get our attention and keep our attention and things. I mean, how do how do you survive? Because you're you're busy you've got a phone you've got Instagram you've got social media is is that going back to boundaries <laughs> yeah and also it's about being compassionate with myself because sometimes I really get it wrong sometimes I will be on my phone too much and you start you know it creeps in doesn't it like you you think oh okay you know I I've been I've been really good for however long like you know, I haven't got that I've taken the app off my phone really interesting when you take the apps off your phone because you go to open your phone to use them but I do you know I do things like I have my phone in a different room um I have my phone you know I I'm not somebody who doesn't look at my phone when I get up because just because of the way that I work currently I usually do my best work in the mornings but I think longer term 
I, I will be moving towards that and limiting screen time, having screen free time every day. I'm not yet at the place where, and it's really interesting. I went on holiday last week and I was like, I don't need to take my phone or laptop. This is amazing. And then the, like literally the day before we were going, this project that I'm involved in that has been really, really quiet and it's been like tech and everything else. Guess what? We had to have an, like two really important calls when we were away. And so I took my laptop and actually on reflection, I wish I had just taken my phone because I didn't need a laptop to have a call. And I felt that, you know, for me, I feel that sometimes the laptop is, is worse than the phone. So I say really in a nutshell there, I'm a work in progress. I know what's happening, but I still have to check myself and remember. And I also think if if you're ever, if you're in a situation where you find yourself looking at your phone and you're with other people, that is a sure sign that you need to remove your phone from that situation. And that might just be putting it in your bag. Oh, well, it makes me feel slightly better that you, you're not perfect and can get no, it wrong as well. <laughs> I thought you were going to give me the, you know, the rules that would fit perfectly yeah. and I would never need to worry about this again. But yeah. <laughs> You're too clever. These people are too clever. <laughs> but you know the neuroscience. You know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I know what they're doing. There was there was a new app. And, and because I've got ADHD, that means that I'm even, I respond even more to dopamine. So there was a new app called Threads that was out kind of end of June, I think, end of June, beginning of July. And I was doing some training with somebody else in, in the business. We we're doing some training at a charity. And we were both like, literally, she's like, are you on threads? I was like, yeah, we were both absolutely addicted to it because what happened is every time you logged in, you have more followers and more, you know, you went, I went from kind of naught to a thousand in a day and my dopamine levels are going through the roof. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then it was really interesting because the growth obviously didn't stay and there wasn't anything else that really sustained it. And now I haven't looked at it probably in, since July. So sometimes you you watch yourself and you're like, whatever they're doing, I know that it's to do with my dopamine. So it's like you're you're observing your behaviour. It's really interesting. Yes, it is, isn't it? And quite scary at times quite too. Scary, yes. <laughs> and just going because you mentioned your ADHD, and I'm really interested in that because I'm fully aware that on this podcast so far when I've talked to people and we've talked about what resilient people look like we haven't really mentioned whether there's any difference for neurodivergence or other other conditions as well and whether that like what is there do you feel like there's any different approach needed um, for neurodivergent people because that we're not going to all fit in the same box in terms of what a resilient person looks like. Yeah, I think that I think you know neurodivergence is massive. There are so many people who have got some kind of neurodivergence. And I think for people with ADHD, a lot of people with ADHD, all of that things like meditation and stillness, they do not work. So I don't know if I've ever met anyone with ADHD who is able to meditate. Right? So actually, it's about active rest rather than 
rest. So, you know, it might be about reading a book or watching a movie or playing um, a computer game or you know, something that is active because the bright, you know, it's a different, a different brain. But, you know, if you've got ADD, then again, that might be a different coping mechanism. Or if you've got ASD, then actually your emotional regulation may be different. There's this whole idea that people who've got ASD lack empathy, but actually there's there's this kind of new research that suggests they don't lack empathy in a way. They have their feelings of empathy are so big that it's difficult, it's more difficult for them to process and contain them. So I think that what we can often see is this is what a resilient person needs to do. This is what they look like. To be resilient, you have to get your sleep. We know we know that that works for nearly everyone. But actually, there, there may be some things that don't work for people. You know, if you're if you've got ASD, for example, usually like you can having a bottom up approach, like a somatic approach where you're um, feeling into your body or maybe like clenching and unclenching your hand, that can be more effective in reducing stress than, you know, thinking about your thoughts because you can get very lost in that, in that thinking. So it is really, and it's really easy to say, oh, well, you just need to bounce back or you just need to do this or you just need to do that. You know, there's so many things that impact how people show up in this world. And some people, you know, people's brains and coping mechanisms are different. And I think that's a really interesting thing when you're in the workplace to, to recognize that what we might find actually stressful and overwhelming, somebody else might find soothing. So it's it's really interesting to explore. And there's no kind of definite, like, if, if someone is neurodivergent, this will work. But I think it's always about going, well, what has worked? And, you know, what are the ingredients when you are feeling at your best and when you can bounce back more quickly? That doesn't mean that you bounce back straight away. Mm, that's really helpful. Thank you. And I also, what I found helpful in your book was just really encouraging us to think about what makes us feel joyful and when were you last feeling in awe and and following that because I sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed by having to have this meaning and purpose and and knowing myself so well that I can say yes this is exactly what I need to do but but I found that really just really accessible to say what makes you happy and do that and also recognise how much we're forced at school, particularly not to necessarily do what we're good at and what we enjoy. And we have to be oh. <laughs> across the board. <laughs> yes, I you mean, hate maths, but you still have to do it. <laughs> oh, we're forced to. I talk because I used to be deputy head with the students that weren't like who weren't achieving in maths or English. We used to take them out of subjects. So they do more. <laughs> I'm like, like. Like this doesn't make like knowing about psychology and learning and everything that doesn't work. Like if you don't like something, doing more of it will not make you better. It will probably make you disengage more. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really hard. Would you be able to go back to that job now or is that just no, it doesn't suit you? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. It's interesting because I'm doing. I do more kind of. I do some pro bono, some voluntary work with young people, and I think there's always something really magical about working with young people, especially because you have the wisdom of age. You know, like okay, so helping them look at what resilience may be, and you know what well being is, and what they need to have, and all of those things. But I think right now, for me, working in schools, I can't see it happening. So. For the foreseeable, but never say never. I don't know what's around the corner. <laughs> That's true. And I was just just going back to when you were mentioning about some of the coping strategies and techniques and things. I I found that your book on one and and what you share on one hand it's very practical and I can see where it comes into the coaching. But then on the other hand, you suddenly start talking about chakras and like being an energy coach and I think you were talking in the book about vibrating on this frequency of love and it was just quite I mean I'm a yoga teacher so I'm completely with it but I wasn't sure that your people that you work with or maybe people that have picked up the book necessarily that was something that they were expecting and I just wondered where that part of your practice comes in and and how well received that is. Yeah, I think it's like, it's always so when I'm working with people, or even when I'm teaching and training, I always say to people, it's an opt in, rather than opt out. So I always invite people, if they want to, to look at these things. And it's interesting, because people surprise you, because, you know, you think, and you can say, you know, like, okay, so maybe there isn't a massive evidence base for this, but like, this is some research or this is, you know, things like the Vegas night on earth, for example, we don't have actually, we don't have the the proof, but there's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of things that point towards, you know, things like cold water immersion or yoga being really good for us. So for me, I went down that journey because I was always thinking, well, what else is there? Like I get the logical stuff. My brain is quite rational, but I feel like there's something else. So I was wanting to explore what that was for me. And then with that exploration, I found that there were things that really helped me to feel better. And therefore I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do some training. I'm going to learn more about these so I can integrate them when it's appropriate and it's you know it it really depends on who you're working with so some people absolutely love it I mean when I'm when I'm on retreat with clients like it's meant to be a business retreat they always they always want to burn things at the end of the retreat they always want to um they always want to have cards and look at cards and, and all of that kind of thing so I think a lot of people are open to it because I think it can be quite a different way of exploring actually emotions and thoughts yeah and a way that perhaps it's new to people as well so yeah ah no I found it really interesting that you had such a holistic approach I also liked the way that your book was called how to feel better I think I'd have been a bit more resistant to it if it promised that I was going to be happy (laughs) (laughs) Or how to feel amazing, how to feel 100% or something like that. It just is like, just feel better. And I just wondered how much wrangling or effect at all there was about that title and where that had come from. Oh my gosh. So that, this was like the working title. So when I met with the publishers, which was in, it must've been January, 2022, we were like, well, what should we call it? And Joe, my publisher was like, let's just call it how to feel better. And then we were like, 
actually, that's a really good name because we were saying we don't want it to be having this kind of really glib promise. Like (laughs) it's not normal to be happy the whole time. Like that isn't healthy, but actually how can we feel a little bit better even when things are not going well for us? And I think that's always a challenge, isn't it? Like it's easy to feel good when everything's working out, but you know, I don't know, your car's broken down or you're like, you've got, you've got a leak, you've got a leaky shower. Or you, you know, we all know that there are these micro things that happen on a daily basis that can impact how we think and feel. So if we are able to acknowledge those and feel those feelings, but also allowing ourselves to have that little bit of joy or that little bit of, you know, that little bit of awe or whatever it is, will make us overall feel better. And therefore, we're going to be, actually, the research is that if we're feeling happier, we're engaged in our work more, we perform better, you know, we're less likely to suffer illness. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get ill. I think, again, sometimes people get really stuck in these messages, don't they? They think, well, it's my fault that it's, no, you know, we we, we can do what we can do. And then sometimes there are things that we can't control. And I think it's really important to acknowledge, you know, that all of this is about doing what you can rather than feeling bad for, for what you haven't done. Mm, that's a really good message. And I like it. it. It definitely, I found reading your book uplifting in that also in the sense that I'm not, we don't have to be perfect. <laughs> and yeah. I'm doing it much better than I thought I was. And you can tell yourself that. Which I like that yeah, message. Yeah, exactly. And l- look at the progress that I've made. I think that's, yeah, look at the progress. So, yeah, I might have only made a little bit of progress over the last month, but I've still moved. Mm. But you're addressing some really, really big topics, like, for example, on the the growth mindset and and whether we have fixed personalities and what we can change. I found that really interesting because I, yeah, how do we distinguish what is our personality, what's fixed? Can everything be changed, do you think? Or are there some things where that's genetics, that's how we're born or how well, or what we've been through? It's So, person, right, so there's lots and lots of research into personality. And when I was at uni, first of all, this was like a massive debate in psychology, like how much is nature, how much is nurture? And the research seems to suggest it's about 50-50. However, you know, that means that 50% can be changed. And I think it's a very interesting field as to what we can change. Like we know there's some evidence from research that we can change things like levels of aggression. Now, obviously, you know, rehabilitation programs work on the premise that we can change things like aggression and antisocial behaviors. But it's interesting because we need to, as an individual, want to change too. So if we are more extrovert, we need to want to be different in order for us to make those changes stick. So this, um, I think it was David Clutterback or it might have been Jonathan Passmore at Henley did some research and they said they think that change is possible in one standard deviation of their behaviours. And I think that, you know, massive change, unless you've got, you've had a really significant life event, is unusual. But I think that 
that small incremental change is easier. Because when we change behaviours, we, we have to change our whole identity. Um, and if we're looking at our personality, that's like a, a, a big identity shift. So I think there is an element of flexibility, but I don't believe that we can, you know, that we can make those massive shifts unless we have a significant trauma or event which triggers that change. And also another thing that I found fascinating was that inner critic and really being aware of that and also changing that. That feels so huge at times when it's something that perhaps you've lived with your whole life or maybe certainly in my case, (laughs) she's been there a long time. And is that something that does constitute quite a big part of the work that you do as a coach or or even the work that you do with yourself? Yes, definitely. Do you know that some people don't have an inner critic? I know. Some don't what have an inner dialogue or voice. I'm like, oh. <laughs> that would free up so much time. <laughs> I know, I know. How would they be having those discussions in their head with themselves? But um, yeah, I think it is just, it is always about being a work in progress and catching yourself. You know, catching yourself when you're saying things like you can't do that because you're too old or you're too this or you're too that. And really starting to, you know, it's that compassion again. Well, actually, I can do this and I am okay. And it it takes time to have that compassion to yourself. It takes time to catch and change those thoughts. And it takes time to step into that like new identity and that new version of yourself. So I've had businesses for seven and a half years. Well, I've had businesses for longer, but I've had online businesses for seven and a half years. And I would say that actually only recently I was in this meeting and there were all of these people who were much, much more experienced than me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm on this book. You know, I'm an advisor to this business for a reason. Because before that, I was like, oh, it's really nice for them to have me here. And then you're looking at everyone else and you're like, "Okay." I'm not here out of sympathy or pity. I'm here because of what I can bring. And, yeah, I was like, okay, it's just taken me 45 years to get there. (laughs) So, yeah, we're always a work in progress. And I think it's interesting because when we're thinking about the inner critic, it often comes back to this imposter syndrome, which I don't believe is a syndrome, but it it is a bunch of feelings. But if you don't sometimes feel like, you know, you're slightly that fish out of water and what am I doing and who am I? Then you probably are somebody who has very little self-awareness. I was going to mention some names, like <laughs> maybe some past US presidents. I was going to say, are they male? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, it's normal to feel those feelings because actually sometimes we go into situations which we can feel are threatening threatening to our status, threatening to our identity. And therefore those feelings are there to protect us. And yes, that also one theme that has come up before in podcasts, but I'm very interested in, is that pushing into your out of your comfort zone. And I've always found that really difficult because I feel like I need to be doing this quite frequently to grow and become a more enriched person and then actually I find it very stressful on my nervous system but I loved how you say well don't go too far which is obviously what I've been doing (laughs) yeah it's like don't like 
I mean, I did this. Don't ever do this at home. Don't jump off the highest bungee jump in New Zealand if you're scared of heights. Like, that was a bad idea. It was a long time ago. It was 25 years ago. Like, maybe yeah, go up to a high building and look out of the window. You know, like, it's just like, it's like, where is your comfort zone? And, you know, lots and lots of people that I speak to and I work with, especially in the business world, like they they decide that they're going to start up businesses. And there's lots of people that say things like jump and the net will get you. But they are in like they've jumped and they are so freaked out of how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to eat? That they do nothing. And actually, so many people I know have done that gone back and got a job and built their business on the site and been successful. But they'd gone so far out of their comfort zone, their nervous system, their brain was just like, we can't cope. Mm. So I would say, you know, yes, of course, do some things that challenge you. But if you are starting to feel really uncomfortable, if you're, you know, when you do a hit cast, I haven't done one for ages, but you have that kind of sick feeling. I've never pushed myself that hard in an exercise class. Oh my god! She probably says something about that. But yeah, that you don't want that sick feeling. Like, okay, it's not good to feel sick. You like, want the sweat. You want the like, yeah. You want to feel the butterflies and the excitement, not the sick. <laughs> okay, I'll remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your businesses, because uh, one of the stories that I tell myself is that every successful business person is there because they've never made any mistakes. They've got it all right. And they've just kind of swanned through their business life with everything going really well. But I I really like hearing that that's not true. And oh, my God. <laughs> Tell tell me about the times it's gone wrong or the mistakes that you've made. Oh my gosh! So actually, so I've got two businesses, two and a half businesses, and you know, there's definitely been mistakes in both of them. In in fact, just before this call, I was emailing um, somebody who's going to be helping me with one of the businesses on the finance side, and I was like, "Yeah, so year one, here are our figures. This is our profit. Year two, here are our figures. This is our profit." Year three, here are our figures. This is our loss. <laughs> and then year four, here are our figures. Here is our profit. And we actually had a really bad year. And it was a combination of things. Like I made some really bad investment de- decisions. I grew my team. So it was too big. And the culture, you know, actually having more people made it a much harder business to run, which is so ironic. All of these things. And it was like, and I remember one of my mentors saying to me, if you have a bad year, you might as well have a really bad year. And I was like, thank you. Um, but actually, it was like, it was the best learning. And it was it was a hangover from really fast growth. So that business, it 10 times virtually in revenue from year one to year two, which all of these people online talk about. And that's amazing. But actually, my nervous system wasn't ready. Our systems weren't ready. And I was just desperately making sure that all of the clients had a great experience, which I did. But it wasn't sustainable. And so, you know, so many mistakes. Actually growing too fast was a mistake. Not having the right accountant, not checking things, making investments without really thinking about where that money was coming from. Growing a team that then 
demanding more of my time, coming away from the things that I like and I'm really good at, like training and teaching and speaking to do the back office stuff that I am really not good at. So, yeah, I mean, that is like a million mistakes in one. And I I was talking to my husband about it today, actually, because I was saying, actually, in a way, it's it's a bit of my proudest time because I've demonstrated to myself that I can pull myself out of a situation that was really bad. And we did it, you know, we turned it around. It's, you know, we've, we've made all that money back. And I think it took us six months to make the money back that we'd lost. And, you know, it was really stressful, but actually now we've got a great team and now we, you know, all of these other things. So, yeah, any business owner who hasn't made mistakes, oh my gosh. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I mean, I've I've had events where the only person who came was my university flatmate. <laughs> I need so more have, stories nice of that. Okay. I need more stories of that because <laughs> challenge this belief. Like one thing, I suppose, is it just part of it that you obviously you don't look for making those mistakes, but is it just um, an acceptance that you're not going to get it right all the time and that's fine. You'll learn from it. And is that part of being resilient? I think it is. I think it's accepting that actually perfection doesn't exist. And yeah, again, it's like a cheesy thing, but actually the road to success is going to have a lot of potholes. And that is often the way that we learn. So the more that we can experience some of those things, which maybe aren't very nice, Um, the more that we can move forward. So I really, really am a massive fan of kind of learning, growing and seeing like, okay, what is the learning from this? And sometimes that's really hard because sometimes you're like, I'm just really annoyed. I can't see any learning. But when you give yourself a bit of time, you can go, oh, well, actually, the reason this didn't work was because of X or Y or maybe that wasn't a good idea on reflection. Um, so lots of things. Mm. And I noticed that when I was chatting to a writer, actually, I think on one of the earlier episodes, I talked about rejection <laughs> a lot to try and work out how he got through that. And when I listened back, I noticed that he didn't use the word rejection. He used the word setback. And the same when I've interviewed people and I've said about you know, failures or something and they're just like obstacles like does our language and our approach actually make a difference when we're talking about things like that yeah because when we say you know when we say failure (laughs) threat state our nervous system is activated when we say are we not even setback we might say I can't think of another word, but yeah, it's like, so things like in coaching, we don't say what would stop you because if we're saying what would stop you, our brain looks for threats. Like what do you need to move forward? What resources do you need? So it's about like switching the brain into that positive state because it opens up our thinking, actually works with our prefrontal cortex and the other areas that are in charge of cognitive function. So, um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting how language can actually impact our nervous system and our brain and our thinking. Mm, okay, I will add that to the checklist of self-awareness. <laughs> <laughs> My diary that gets filled every day with these things. 
Oh. There's, so, there's so many things that you can do. And I think that's the other things. It's, it's like start with one. Like don't do everything. Um, because sometimes we can then again get really overwhelmed, can't we? <laughs> yes. And then I just don't do anything. Or Yeah, it's like... And, and it, I've got 500 things on my list. Where do I start? Yeah. I need to journal about the fact that I'm not journaling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There must be a reason. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've got coming up and your work and who you're working yeah. with. So I've obviously got, I'm still promoting my book, How to Feel Better. And I'm really focusing down on the coaching business, which is Optimus Coach Academy. So we are doing quite a lot of um, of kind of taster sessions, getting people in and enrolling people. And that's really an ongoing enrollment. So if you want to kind of look at me for personal development stuff like this, then my Instagram Ruth could see the best place. But if you want to find out more about coaching, um, then my the Optimus Instagram is the best place. So two different things, but I'm always, I love to talk about all of this stuff because I just think if we just have, you know, if we're only kind of marginally feeling better, we're winning. <laughs> like even that tiny percent makes a difference. We don't have to suddenly become, as one of a friend of a friend's refers to me, which makes me want to makes me want to feel sick. She calls me a lifestyle guru. <laughs> aren't you a lifestyle guru? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Um, but we don't have to be lifestyle gurus. It is actually about doing the small things that make the big differences. Yes. I remember the kind of shock when I first saw my yoga teacher that I had as my lifestyle guru, who was actually like a bit of a mess and going out and getting drunk. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> but we do yeah, hold people to impossible standards, don't we? And I, it's really nice to know that we're all normal I wondered like I mean the premise of your book is that you're giving people the tools to self-coach and I can see there could be limitations to that in terms of of how that works but it feels like you're giving away all your secrets (laughs) or is that not the case (laughs) well okay so this this is one of the things so actually give away your great stuff in the book because people don't People like people don't implement. So I would hope that people would self-coach from the book. But knowing what I know about human behavior, many people, like few people read books, even fewer implement from those books. So you can have a book that is exactly the same as a course and people will still buy the course. And obviously our courses are accredited and there's a lot more than what's in the book. So there's always this idea that, you know, if you give it away, if I give this to somebody and they implement all of this, I'm overjoyed because most people don't. Like most people, they read it, they think that's great. They maybe do one thing, which again is better than nothing. But yeah, most of us don't implement. <laughs> I'm really going to try because it was really yeah. helpful to me. I loved the idea of the CEO meetings and I'm going to have meetings with myself to be accountable. Um, yeah. That was something that really struck me and, I, and was new to me. So I, I promise I will implement some of it. Promise. Yeah, <laughs> let me know. I'll, keep, I'll, I'll see if you're, t- if you're still doing it. <laughs> Oh, Ruth, thank you so much for talking about resilience and your work and everything else that we've discussed. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. It's been great to talk to you too. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.